Now, many of you will know that this uh, parable is sometimes referred to as the prodigal son, isn't it? And the word prodigal simply means someone who is quite reckless, someone who is extravagant. So, for example, you could have a prodigal milkshake. That means you just have a huge, massive milkshake. You could have a prodigal stack of pancakes, which if you saw my Facebook post today, you will know that's what I had for breakfast. If you were with me for dinner last night, which none of you were apart from my wife, you will know that we enjoyed a prodigal fillet steak. Medium rare, it was unbelievable. We were out with friends, it was just quite amazing. So you see, the prodigal was the one who squanders everything. He comes crawling back to his father, and, but here we see is described as the lost son. You see that in the heading of the Bibles that you've got in front of you. But that's the great mistake I think that many people make when reading this parable, because it's not just one son that's lost. It's both. You see, this parable is in a sense a story of comparison. Both sons represent... And they represent all kinds of people, people of different religions, different ways of thinking, philosophies, that men have tried to devise the whole way through history, of trying to make up a way of how they can be right with God, how they can get to be with God for eternity. And what Jesus is saying here, through these two sons, through these two stories, if you like, he's saying they're both wrong. They're both wrong. And what he's interestingly saying, though, is he's saying the Christian faith isn't wrong. You see, historically, a bit of history here, when Jesus died and rose again and Christianity grew up in the ancient world, the Romans were in rule, and they never described the Christian faith as a religion. It's interesting that, isn't it? They used to describe the Christian faith as an irreligion or an anti-religion. Christians were described, actually, by the Romans as atheists. That is, who didn't believe as Caesar, as Lord, as king at the time. But the funny thing was, and the Romans understood it, that was the Christianity was utterly distinct. It, it, and that is what Jesus is about to blow our minds with. It's not like any other world religion. It is utterly distinct. The Romans understood it. And I hope by the end of this afternoon we will understand that too. What I'm going to do is... I'm, We're taking a break. We've been looking at the book of Judges, and we will be looking at the book of Judges next week and and for the following weeks. But I wanted to take it, if if you like, a little time out because of the baptism service today. And we're celebrating new life in Christ in David and Tuha. And essentially, I wanted to map that out through this story uh, of the lost son or the lost sons. And what the way I'm going to do it is slightly different to our normal way. We'd normally go through the passage verse by verse. And what I'm going to do today is a quick snapshot of the whole story. And then I'm going to make three short points at the end. So if you're following with me, we're just going to go through the story now pretty quickly. So that's why the Bibles are in front of you. I hope they're open. And so you can, I'll point you in the right direction, show you where we're going. But this is a story. And if you like, we get to scene one. It's the younger son. And the younger son, as we see, approaches his father. He asks for a portion of the estate. Now, that would be like you guys down the front here speaking to your parents and saying, hey, I want all of your money now. Okay? And actually what what they're saying, because it's the younger son, he would get a third, the older son would get the double portion. That's the way their culture worked. But it's so shocking, the question being asked, 
And the, the original hearers of this parable, this story, their chins would have hit the ground. Because to ask for your inheritance while your dad is still alive, you're essentially saying, Dad, I want you dead. And the younger son is simply saying, Daddy, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I like what you've got. I'll have the car, maybe the house. My kids are even weighing up what parts of my inheritance they'd like. You know, they, they talk about it. You, know, you have the car, we're up the house. And you know, it's, no, come on, I'm still here, thank you. You know, it's like saying, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. You get halfway through verse 12, have a look at it. And the original hearers of this parable would expect one thing. They'd expect the father at this point to, to get hold of his son by the earlobe, drag him out of the house, give him a little kick up the backside, you know, a certain a big rebuke, and say, come on. But the father doesn't do that, does he? Have a look what he does. Halfway through verse 12, he divided his property. And literally the word is there, he divided his biology. His bios is the original word there. That is, he, he cut himself up for the sake of the son. And it's an extraordinary thing. In that culture, your land, the what you owned and who you were, were so interlinked. Because if you lost your land, you lost your life. Quite literally sometimes. But the father's willing. And he's willing to endure that rejection of his son saying, I want your stuff. But I don't want you. So verse 13, have a look at it. The son goes off and he's prodigal. He's extravagant. Could have been with steak and wine or milkshakes. He squanders his wealth and it says with wild living. It didn't go too well though, did it? And it sounds a lot like London life in some ways, doesn't it? You could spend a whole heap of money, but what's the end product? There's a famine. He gets a rubbish job, but it's not enough. He's starving, come verse 17. Have a look at that. And here's the big turn. The big turn in the younger son's scene one of the story. The words are, look at it, he came to his senses. Probably the first time in his life, he thought beyond the immediate pleasures that he could get right in front of him. The big milkshake, the big steak. He thought of someone other than himself. Verse 18, have a look at that. He begins to think of his life in reference now, not to himself, but now in reference to his father, but also in reference to his heavenly father as well. There's a vertical element there. And verse 19, he plans to go home, but it's now to be kind of a hired man, if possible, in the household. And what he's trying to do there, he's trying to find a way, can he possibly make up for what he's done to his dad? He's not looking, notice the words are incredibly important there. He's not saying, I'm going to go back as a slave. Because he, he's saying, as hired man, it's like, I'll go back as a, a, a kind of an apprentice within the household of my father. I'll try and learn a trade in order to make up the money to pay my dad back in time. He thinks, by implication, he can't be a son anymore. He's kind of lost that privilege. But he thinks, I'll, I'll be an apprentice. That's the plan. I'll make the money back for my dad. I'll try and make up for the disgrace, the mess that I've put myself through and the family through. So look at verse 20. He gets up and he goes back to his father. 
I love these verses. Let's look at them together. Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. I don't want you to miss this amazing little fact. And uh, we were talking about the other day is um, army officers. I don't know if you knew. They never run. Middle Eastern men at this time never run. Why? Well, the children ran. And even the women ran in that culture. But men, they walked. There was a sense of dignity. If you were a landowner, if you were a patriarch of the time, uh, you walked. Uh, to, to run meant to, you had to lift up your, your, your kind of the robe that you were wearing. You had to expose your knees, which was a big... It wasn't the thing you did as a man at that time. And it showed a lack of control. It showed a kind of an emotional freedom. And it gets bigger and bigger, doesn't it? The hug, the kiss. The point is, this just doesn't happen in this kind of culture. Oh, verse 21, have a look at that. The son tries to tell his dad about the plan. He's, he wants to pay his dad back. Even in reality, that, that would just take a lifetime and probably more. But verse 22, have a look. The father just doesn't want to know, does he? What does he say? Get the best robe. What's he saying there? He's actually saying, get my best robe. Get my property. The father, you know, he's not going to wait for the son to settle his debt, to clean himself up. Oh, son, you smell a bit. Go and, go and have a shower first, and then I'll give you a hug and a kiss. No. Wham. His arms come round. Get my robe. Put it on him. The father is literally, in this act here, taking his son, who's messed up so badly, and he's wrapping him up. He's covering his rebellion. And the smelly consequences of this guy's sin. Now, there's all sorts of imagery going on here. The robe, it covers. The ring shows the status. He's now back of the sun. The sandals, they're showing he's distinct. He's, no, he's not a slave. He's showing a dignity. Verse 23, look at that. This is where it just gets bigger and bigger, doesn't it? The fattened calf is brought out. And it seems to be such the biggest issue for the, the older son, doesn't it? The fattened calf, Dad. Really? Why is that? Well, you guys, I, I, I'm guessing you might do Big Macs on the way home. I don't know. You know I don't want to put th thoughts into your parents' uh, minds. But, you know, you, you go back and you think, meat, that's fine. All of you South Africans here, you think, hey, we'll do that anytime. You know, get out the bri, let's have a rib, you know, ribeye. But, you know, it's actually, meat in this time, it's an utter delicacy. They would only have it maximally once a week. And, and then it wouldn't be anything like this. It might be a, a small goat or, you know, something small. And, and they, may share, they might share it with the local family as well. The fattened calf, that's like a once a year. Maybe even a once a lifetime for a family. Do you see the response of the older son, though? How dare you spend our wealth? What he's actually thinking is he's saying, how dare you spend my wealth? And he's thinking as he's looking to his younger son, this tow rack doesn't deserve anything. How dare you? And you see then how the younger son and the older son are very, very similar. In this regard, they both look at their dad. They both look at their father and they think they have every right to control him. 
uh, to control his property, to control his things, to control his wealth. And you can see how annoyed the older son is. Look at verse 29. As he insults his father, you may not spot it, but look what he says. He simply just says, look. It would be like you lot down in front here addressing your mum and dad. I'm not suggesting you do this, by the way. Okay? But you go, oi. Oi, you. It shows a lack of respect, doesn't it? And he's publicly insulting his father here. Firstly, by not calling him father, daddy, dad. But by secondly, now not going into probably the biggest feast that the family have ever held. Verse 31, look at it, the father responds. Again, you expect him, and the first century listeners to this story would expect him. They're expecting him to come out as a father and to give his elder son now a good ticking off. How dare you humiliate me in front of my friends? But he doesn't do that, does he? Look how the father responds in verse 31. Is he like the son? Does he go up to his son and say, Oi, you. No, he says, look what he says. Verse 31. My son. My son. You are always with me, it says in verse 31. And everything I have is yours. How do you imagine those verses coming through? If you could describe, what adjectives would you put and and say beside that? Would you say they're tender? Yeah. There's grace there, isn't there? There's compassion. How does the story end? We're nearly there at the end of the story. We don't know. We don't know how the story ends. In a sense, that's the genius of the story. It's frustrating, isn't it? But it's brilliant. The conclusion of the parable is not focused around the sons. We don't know whether the son came back in. Why? Because it's the father. It's the response of the father that is primary in the story. That's the thing that we need to see. So what can we learn? We've we've gone through the story now. We've got three very quick points. What can we learn from this brilliant, frustrating, contemporary scene that Jesus has painted for us in this parable. Three things, they're on your sheet, it's going to be very quick. Firstly, Jesus tells us something about God. We have all sorts of caricatures, don't we? Kind of pictures of what God is like around us. In the media, wherever you look, your friends will say, oh, God's like this. But if you want to know what God is really like, you look here in his words. And what we see here is a father, he's like any, unlike any father of the time. Because this father longs for you. He loves you in a way that is willing to step outside of the cultural norms of the time. And this gives us a wonderful glimpse of who God is and what God is like. This is a father that runs to you. Is a father that kisses, that honours and protects his children. He speaks with compassion and gentleness. That doesn't undermine his authority in any way or his prowess in any way. But demonstrates that he is secure in himself and willing to give himself fully to you. To love and serve you. Now of course Jesus is speaking here of God. His father. The one who has all authority yet speaks and acts with grace 
and gentleness and an overwhelming care for you. So first point, I mean, Jesus tells us about God. Secondly, Jesus tells us about our sin. If you're not a Christian here, just even, even me saying that word may even be the time for you to say, I'm going to turn off right now. Can I just gently say to you, don't allow that to be the case. Don't allow one word, just try to understand it a bit more. And try to understand what God has done in order to resolve that. To help you in that, to help us all in that. So second point, Jesus tells us about our sin. And we look at the first son, and I guess you might look at those beginning verses in the UK, and you say, oh, it's obvious. He's done lots of stuff which isn't very good. He's the obvious sinner. We understand that. He squanders his money, doesn't he, on wild living. And we don't know what exactly that looks like, but you know kind of what it might look like. And you know what it would look like if that were you today. We don't need to go there. But in his wild living, what does he do? He insults his father. He despises his father. Every time he gets out his credit card to spend more in his wild living, it's saying, Dad, I don't want you. I just want your money. I just want your money. Every time he types that pin code in, I don't want you, I want your money. And you can imagine the Pharisees and the teachers of the law gathered around Jesus as he told this parable. And you can see them. Look at verse 2. They're there. You can imagine them. And you may be one of them shaking their heads, tutting away as they heard the story about the younger son. Oh, I'm not like him. It's wild living. It's big sin. But you get to the end of the parable and you see that one son has been very bad. And one son seems to be very good. He's worked the farm. He's done all, everything, everything good, it seems to me. But they're both alienated from the father. You see, both wanted things from their father. We've looked at that already. But they didn't want their father. They didn't want their father for who he was and his love. They used their father to get what they really loved. And that was his wealth, his property and status and stuff like that. And they did it in different ways. Of course they did. One did it by being very, very good. And one did it by being very, very bad. But the point is both were lost. But the shock of those gathering around Jesus, listening to this parable, would have been as they come to hear, if you like, the summation of this whole story, that the bad son is saved and the good son is lost. That's a shock, isn't it? Notice how he's lost, though, because this is really hard to hear, I think, in the society in which we live. The good son, that is the older son, he's lost not in spite of his goodness. He's lost because of his goodness. Let me explain. Such is his stubborn and proud heart. He's not willing to go into the feast that his father has prepared for the younger son, who he's welcomed home. See, it's actually his goodness, or you might say his self-righteousness. That is preventing him from going into the feast to enjoy the fattened calf, to enjoy all the celebration and that intimacy of relationship with his father. 
He can't bear the thought that the younger son has been treated with such grace. Unmerited kindness. He thinks that such a privilege, like having all this feast and stuff, should be earned. Now, he expects, you'll see in the text there, he expects a goat for his labour. The older son says, you've never given me a goat. He's been so loyal over the years. And he expects, I need a goat, Dad. I deserve a goat. The point is, he expects too little. His father had a fattened calf ready for him. If only he would humble himself and realise he could never earn it. He just needs to receive it and come and enjoy the feast. Look at back at verse 1 and 2 of this chapter. Do you see Jesus' audience? There's two kind of audiences. Do you spot them? There's the tax collectors and sinners. They're the really bad people, by the way. And then there's the, um, what do you see? The Pharisees and teachers of the law. They think they're really good. They walk around with their heads held high. They think, oh, aren't I wonderful? They're the ones who tut at everyone else. And Jesus is showing both of those groups of people through these two sons that both are lost in their sin. Oh, one is in hot, rebellious sin, wild living. And one is in this kind of, I'm really good. I'm kind of thinking I'm pretty, you know, I'm a good son. I've done all this kind of stuff. But he's kind of indifferent about his dad. Doesn't love his dad. And I guess they represent every religion, every worldview, every way of thinking in this world. The sons each say in their different ways, this is the way that the world can be better. And it's the way that I'm going to be happier with myself and with God. And Jesus says, no, you're both wrong. And you're both lost. Oh, the older brother, those kind of types, they divide the world in two. They're either people, the good people that are in and the bad people that are out. And the younger brother types, they divide the world into kind of two categories as well. There's the open-minded, progressive people. I'm going to go off and live the wild living. Uh, while you bigoted, kind of judgmental people, you stay back here and just tut at me. They're out. And Jesus responds to both in this parable. And he says, you know, neither of those groups are in. None of them. Only the humble are in. The proud are out. Those who realise they just need to accept the grace, the unmerited kindness of the Father, they're in. The ones who think they can earn it, they're out. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we've been celebrating here that brings new life to these two lovely people and to so many here, that gospel of Jesus Christ is not a religion. It's not even an irreligion, as the Romans thought. It isn't moralism, trying to live a good life, or relativism, just kind of washing it all down to nothing. It's something completely other. And do you see what Jesus is telling us here about our sin and how radically different the Christian faith is? There are two ways here represented of, of trying to essentially be your own saviour, your own Lord. There are two ways that we try and control God and we try and get his stuff 
without ever getting him. One son does it through a bunch of bad stuff. One son does it through a bunch of good stuff. But both want the father's stuff without wanting the father himself. And the Bible calls that sin. It's rebellion against God. You want to enjoy life in this world and all the amazing blessings of living in this world. Yet you don't want the Father himself. Are you one of these people represented here today? In these two sons? One scholar put it this way. It may be helpful for you to discern whether whether you are one of those people. He said, religious people obey God to get things. Gospel people, that is Christian people, obey God to get God. To resemble him. To love him. To know him. And to delight in him. If you are as lost as the younger brother, then your self-indulgence one day will bring you down. And those around you. Now, if you're as lost as the elder brother, you may just find yourself quite judgmental, quite angry at times. Just look at the older brother. He has so much. And yet, what's he doing? He stands outside. He stands outside of the feast with the fattened calf. And essentially, he's getting angry and judgmental and tutting. Why? Because he thinks he's lived a good enough life. He thinks he's earned enough to get in. But his expectations are way too low. He obeys to get stuff. His motivation is basically all wrong. How can this be changed? Last thing, very briefly. Jesus tells us about salvation. This will be very brief. What's the underlying problem in all of us? The reality deep down is that I guess we're all trying to justify ourselves before the world and also before God. And whatever we do, whether we try to conform ourselves to what the culture around us and our friends around us, like the younger son, or be angry and judgmental like the older son, both ways don't answer the biggest problem that we have. That is, how can we be saved? How can we write before that just and holy and perfect God? And the problem is, If we don't know the answer to that, we're still all lost in our sin. So what does Jesus tell us about salvation? How can we be saved? How can we be in that loving, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and God, as David so rightly put in his testimony? Firstly, we need God to love us first. Who goes out? Who goes out in the story? Verse 20. It's obvious. Who goes out to the son in verse 28 to the older son? It's the father. He runs out to the younger son. He goes out of the party to see the older son. He's ready to clothe them, honour the son. He pleads with the son, come to the feast. We need the love of the heavenly father first. That is, he's the one that initiates. Notice in verse 20 and 21, the kiss of the father brings those sobering words of repentance. It's not repentance doesn't bring the kiss. Do you notice it's that way around? That is, God works in all of us, way before we probably even know it, to soften our hearts, to bring us back to him. He runs to us, embraces us, kisses us, and then we truly turn to him. Even before, when the younger son, verse 17, came to his senses, well, that's God. God's initiating that turn in him. And every Christian here, I guess, will testify to that. 
amazing, initiating work of God. It's humbling, isn't it? But it is totally amazing. Jesus is saying to both groups listening, you're in trouble, but I've loved you and I will love and I will save you. But look at that. We need to repent of our attitudes as well. Second point of that, that last point. We can be good as, as we possibly can be in our actions, like the Pharisees. But the difference between a Christian and someone who just leads a kind of very moral, upright life, a religious type, is that Christians will actually say sorry to God. They will repent for doing good things if the reason they did those good things wasn't a good reason. It wasn't to honour God. See, the older brother, he's lost in his good works. He thinks he must merit himself before God. And Jesus hits back in the story showing us that salvation will bring not only repentance in our actions, but also in our attitudes too. Third and last, we need to realise the cost of our salvation. The Christian, I guess, is someone who understands the cost that God had to bear for the salvation that he has brought us. It does seem free, doesn't it? You, you ever thought that? Have a look at verse 31, though. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. See, all that the father had left was due to the old brother. He was going to get it. Everything would belong to him in time. The fattened calf, the robe, the ring, the sandals, that all went to the younger brother would have in time, if the younger brother had not come back, been the older brothers. There was a cost. And it went against the older brother. Salvation is not free. So how should have the older brother responded? Well, he should have run ahead of his father. I'm sure the father would have been slower. You know, He, he should have gone ahead and he should have embraced the son, the younger son. He should have welcomed him back. He should have kissed the son and carried the son, loved the younger son. And the point is, I think, that Jesus is kind of intimating towards here is that we have just that. We have an older brother who has done just as the older brother in this story should have done. Oh, it's Jesus, of course, isn't it? Because he came from heaven to earth. And the cost was not just his wallet. It was his life. There's one time in the New Testament where Jesus doesn't call his father, father. And it's the time when he hung on the cross and he cries out words from the Psalms. He says, my God, my God, not father, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, he was not being treated as a son. He was being treated as you and I deserve. See, Jesus paid the debt on the cross that we've sung about already. And, and we know that we all deserve it. And maybe you're a younger brother living a life in London to the full. Let me just say it doesn't last. Maybe you're an older brother type, but your goodness will never satisfy you. Those around you, and most importantly, God. You will never stop being a younger or older brother until you're overwhelmed by this prodigal love of your heavenly father and the cost that he was willing to bear through giving us the great, the perfect older brother in Jesus Christ.
who was willing to sacrifice his life for you so that you might know the Father's embrace, kiss, robe, sandals, love, personal, intimate, forgiving relationship that David and Tuha have testified to today through their baptism. What do you need to do? Come to your senses. Verse 17. Run back to your heavenly Father. Accept his warm embrace. And that prodigal love of your heavenly Father. I wonder if you need to do that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this wonderful story. If there's stuff that we've been learning today that we need to impress on our own hearts, that we need to recall, that we need to trust, may we do it just now in the silence of just a moment. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for that prodigal, undeserved, gracious love. Amen. We're now going to sing of that wonderful love in our last song. In Christ alone, it is simply in that wonderful, prodigal love of Christ given on the cross. Let's stand and sing, in Christ alone my hope is found.